countries, including government program, accuses three of the world's biggest credit rating agencies of bias against some African countries, including... Come to the public, really. So I think for the time being, for the scale of misalignment... The new Chevy Silverado HD puts you in command. Owns... Uh, the cost of borrowing right. and the credit rating uh, bias that puts African countries at a disadvantage. Uh, if we can deal with that, you save $75 billion. Wow. Also this morning, House 10 mining site sinks underground at Odumase in the Ashanti region, barely a year after a similar incident resulted in the death of a pregnant woman in the same area. We have details for you shortly. Plus, Wolopokuwari School push aside love and go hard against their female affiliates, St. Louis Senior High School, to retain the regional championship trophy, or they will soften their stance as a dual clash in the Ashanti regional qualifiers. We have the details in the ongoing regional qualifiers of the NSMQ. And also as part of this package, we'll, tell you, we'll take you live to the UPSA Auditorium for a public lecture on artificial reproductive technologies. We'll have details of that and also business coming up uh, shortly. My name is Aishi Brian. Do stay for details. The United Nations Development Program is raising red flags over what they describe as bias on the part of three of the world's biggest credit rating agencies against some African countries, including the Republic of Ghana. In its latest report on lowering the cost of borrowing in Africa, the UNDP says the continued downgrade of Ghana's economy is based on less subjective assessments and is costing the state and other African countries some $74 billion. With this amount of money saved, it is more likely that Ghana may not have signed up for a $3 billion bailout from the IMF. Foreign Affairs correspondent Blessed Soga has an exclusive interview with Ahuna Eziakonwa, the regional director of the UNDP, which shed more light on the report. He joins us with more. Blessed, which rating agencies have been cited and why is the UNDP accusing them of bias? Aisha, it's a good time to be talking to you as we look forward to that interview with the uh, regional head of the United Nations Development Programme later tonight on Foreign Affairs. The interaction centred on the uh, annual meetings of the Afriexim Bank, which is focused on the theme of building prosperity for uh, the continent or for Africans. Now, a key concern has been the emerging debt crisis that many continents and uh, many countries uh, on the African continent are uh, presented with. Uh, of course, the UNDP is one of the key development uh, partners for countries uh, such as Ghana and other developing nations around the world. Uh, so I sought to get uh, the perspective of the UNDP on attaining the US NDG, SDGs, uh, which uh, part of the target focuses on not leaving anyone behind by 2030 as far as the Sustainable Development Goals uh, is concerned. And given this uh, imminent, uh, uh, I mean, debt crisis that is facing most, most of the African nations, there are fears that we may not be able to meet these targets. Now, when I put that to the UNDP, a key concern that came up has got to do with financing 
for these developing nations. And it's instructive to note that the UNDP has carried out a research which is pointing out that there seems to be bias on the part of three key um, top rating agencies, Standards and Poor's, Fitch, and they talk about one other uh, in the report, which they say that cumulatively, if you put together their, the way they go about their reporting, they shut the Ghanaian economy out of the international financial markets. And these matters appear to affect investments within our economy. For instance, they point to uh, what they describe as uh, cyclicality uh, of, of some issues or matters that are less subjective and should not necessarily matter to the uh, economic metrics. For instance, they, we know that Ghana is surrounded by countries that are facing insurgency. That's a fact. But for the UN, these are matters that should not necessarily be on the front burner in shutting Ghana out of the international market. And these are some of the reasons for which they believe that if you take away access to 75 billion US dollars, uh, which will potentially give them an upper hand and would, they may not necessarily have to go for a bailout program. Blessed, we know that President Ekufuado for some time now has raised concerns over how Ghana is being shut out of the international market. What's the reason for this? Uh, well, um, at this very same annual meetings that I'm talking about, the Abraxim meetings, uh, President Dr. and international actors, uh, just to try and find a way of building a, a proper source of finance for the continent. And as part of his concerns, he also pointed out to this uh, alleged bias. That's how we need to treat it as of now, because uh, there are some on the other divide who say that if you look at Ghana's economic performance, you don't need uh, an expert to tell you that we're not doing well. But based on this report, it appears that there's some leaning towards what it is that the president has been talking about, that consistently there appears to be a stereotype or a bias against uh, countries such as Ghana. Let's listen to him. Looking at the annual meetings of the Afri-Exim Bank in Accra, President Ikufada said Ghana's economic difficulties were compounded by the downgrades from the rating agencies. According to him, the country which had become the favorite child of bondholders was suddenly shut out of the international capital markets. And I can comfortably and convincingly say this. As the AU champion for African financial institutions and leader of a country which recently had to deal with one of the most difficult periods in its post-independent history. Difficulties which were exacerbated by the reckless behavior of rating agencies that engaged that engaged Blessed, we know um, emphatically that Ghana is not in a good economic position. Is, is the UNDP actually saying that uh, this should not be? Uh, they believe that w- when you're looking at the factors that should matter, um, so some of the obvious situations and situations that countries, for instance, such as Ghana, cannot change should not matter in the reason for which you would uh, downgrade as. Uh, but I put that to Ezenkoa, who happens to be the uh, regional director for the United Developments Program. And just as President Akufando is using that harsh word of reckless rating on the part of the ratings agency, they seem to suggest that while it may not be a case that they are reckless in the ratings, except to say that there are less subjective matters that should be um, not should, should not matter when it comes to the ratings that are given to countries such as Ghana. And based on this we're losing uh, to the tune of 75 billion U.S. dollars 
potentially that could save us from not going to the uh, IMF, for instance, for a $3 billion bail. an issue, uh, but there are ways to make finances cheaper for the continent. That's something we have to look at. And we've been looking at it at UNDP, for instance. We just did a study on uh, the cost of borrowing right. and the credit rating uh, bias that puts African countries at a disadvantage. Uh, if we can deal with that, you save $75 billion wow. uh, a year for just 16 countries that we surveyed. Are you saying this is becoming a reality? Because our president raised that during the Africa meetings where uh, there's this continental push for our own standards and ratings. Is that the solution to the problem? That's part of the solution. I mean, you will always have uh, to um, participate in the international rating agencies because they, you know, they have a yeah, standard. we can't do without them. Exactly. Yeah. But, but I think that you can influence how they rate Africa and it comes back to the perceptions. Well, the full interview is later on Foreign Affairs with Blessed Sogon. They join you channel at 10 p.m. You make a date. Let's now take you live to UPSA's Kofiohene Kunedu Auditorium, where there's a public lecture on artificial reproductive technologies, ethical and legal considerations through an African prison. Titled, Labor Laws in Ghana. We must applaud him. As a South African, for his investment of time into the development of such an important book on the labor laws of Ghana. Law is never a straight line and is to be highly commended for its dedication and commitment to labor laws that extends beyond the shores of its native South Africa. We have no doubt that this book will shed a bright light on the intricacies of labor laws within our beloved nation. I also consider this book is a valuable resource that will serve as a guide and reference for students, researchers, and professionals alike. And we express our gratitude for its invaluable contribution. As an institution dedicated to the pursuit of knowledge, we firmly believe in the power of intellectual discourse and exchange. This event provides a unique opportunity for us to engage in discussions that transcend boundaries and delve into the nuances of artificial products to engage in discussions that transcend boundaries and delve into the nuances of artificial products. My name is Daryl We can address the ethical, legal, societal implications that arise and work together to shape a, a better future transformative implications that arise and work together to shape a, a better future transformative. Thanks for being with us. Details coming up. Oh, we can do better than we did. Let's start from... today a three-year, $3 billion support for this program. We are proud 
to be partners with Ghana in addressing the difficult economic and financial conditions the country is facing. Today's decision is also a major milestone for the G20 Common Framework, the commitment by the Official Creditors Committee. speaker for today is the Dean of the UPSA Law School, Professor Kufi Aboti. Let's welcome him. The Chairman of Council, Vice-Chancellor, dignitaries present academics and managers of sister institutions, deans, HODs, faculty, students, distinguished ladies and gentlemen. Our speaker for today is eminently qualified to speak to the subject. Professor Letwoka George Mpedi completed his, bachelor, his B. Juris degree in 1996 and LLB degree in 1998 at Vista University. In 2001, the LLM degree in labor law was conferred upon him by the then Rand Africans University, now University of Johannesburg. Upon completing his LLB, he was a junior lecturer in the Department of Mercantile Law at Vista University, Mamelodi Campus. He joined the Center for International and Comparative Law and Social Security Law, CICLAS, at the then Rand Africans University as a researcher in 2000. In August 2003, Professor Mpidi accepted a position as a research fellow at the Max Planck Institute 
of foreign and international social law in Munich, Germany. Upon his return from Germany in 2006, he was employed as a deputy director at CICLAS. In the same year, the LLD degree in mercantile law was conferred upon him by the University of Johannesburg. Before his current position, which obviously was a past position, as Deputy Vice-Chancellor, academic, Professor Mpedi served as Head of Department, Practical Business Law in January 2011 to 2012, December 2012, Vice Dean January 2013 to December 2015, Director at CICLAS January 2009 to December 2015, and Executive Dean January 2016 to December 2020 at the Faculty of Law of the University of Johannesburg. He lectured labor law and social security law at the LLB level, postgraduate and certificate students, and has delivered numerous papers at numerous international and national conferences. Our speaker has published widely in the fields of social security and labor law, and his present and recent publication include a co-authored book of labor law in Ghana, 2022, this as we can all see, is the Vice Chancellor of the University of Johannesburg. Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce to you our speaker for today, Professor Mpedi. Thank you so much, uh, my brother, for uh, that wonderful introduction. Um, the Honorable Minister, um, I assume the Minister is here, but if he's not yet here, I'll acknowledge him um, in advance. Uh, Honorable Ignatius Buffo Awa, Minister of Employment, Labor, Relations and Pensions, the Chairman of uh, Council of the uh, UPSA. My dear brother, Vice-Chancellor, Professor Amati, the Registrar, Deans, Directors, members of the Judiciary, dear students, members of the media, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. It is really great uh, for me to be here addressing you on this exciting topic. It is for me, and I hope after this lecture it will also be exciting to you. I'd like to start by thanking my dear brother for making this possible. When we talked about this, it sounded like a dream. And I want to tell you, in Professor Martin, you have a dual vice-chancellor. Since we talked about this, yes, let's give him a warm round of an applause. When we talked about this recently in Egypt uh, as a possibility, in my head I thought, oh, this will happen maybe 2024. <laughs> and it didn't take um, you know, four, four weeks for us to already have this opportunity and the dates locked. Ladies and gentlemen, what do we mean by artificial reproductive technology? This, in a nutshell, is a process whereby the eggs are removed from ovaries of a woman and fertilized outside the woman's body using sperm in a laboratory. These eggs are surgically 
removed, ladies and gentlemen, for purpose of this being fertilized, and then put back in a woman, of course, for the embryo to develop. It could be the, the woman that provided those eggs, but it could be another woman. Somebody asked, you know, what are the examples of this technology? They are foremost uh, another woman. Somebody asked, you know, what are the examples of this technology? They are foremost uh, somewhere around 5%. In fact, constantly for three years. We have had that for about 40 year all time best record. Uh, lending rate has been reduced from about 40% to about 20. Policy rate from about 25.5 to about 12. We're doing so much, we're considering the primary macro indicators. And then the capitalization. The second one, ladies and gentlemen, is called intrafallopian transfer. Another one is called sperm injection. And the last one, frozen embryos that were adopted. So already at this stage, I would like to mention why I find this quite interesting and why I find it important for me to share this few ideas with you. It is because very little is said and known about this artificial reproductive technology and their legal and ethical questions that must be answered. And as long as very little is said or done about this artificial reproductive technology, ladies and gentlemen, it means that us on the African continent will be caught napping. The truth of the matter is that a lot is happening in this area. Now, earlier on, I talked about this four uh, artificial, four ways in which this artificial reproductive technology can take place. But for this to happen, there's a lot that is happening underneath that. I talked about sperm injection. There are people who donate sperm, ladies and gentlemen, on a daily basis that is used in these technologies. Of course, the aim is to provide those that cannot have children to have that opportunity to have children and raise children. But there are challenges because there are misuses, there are uses and misuses of to have that opportunity to have children and raise children. But there are challenges because there are misuses, there are uses and misuses of Let's turn to this other story. Ghanaian manufacturers and industry captains for the first time will be hosting other African counterparts for this year's Pupa Conference and Exhibition in Accra, the event which provides a platform for market expansion an avenue for sharing ideas will also support activities of smaller businesses across the continent. The few Ghanaians I know, including my postdoctoral research fellow, Dr. Coleman, present here today, about whether this is something that is happening in Ghana. And in the last two father, so the first child and the second child were born from the semen donated by this man. And when she discovered that he fathered over 500 children. She went straight to court for this man to stop. Actually, she, should see, she sued this man. And he took a court order where the judge said to this gentleman that should you father additional children, you will be fined an equivalent of 2 million rands per child. And it's not only in the Netherlands. Recently, there were reports that he was in Kenya donating. So the risk there is that people could end up, you know, these children could end up marrying their brothers and sisters without knowing. And the challenge is that many countries do not regulate this and put limits to, pro to prohibit or 
to prevent some of these um, you know, challenges that may arise with siblings knowing that you know, they are related. It is said that one man can father technically one billion children, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, you, know, you need to have many partners to father one billion children. But just 500 children throughout the world, there is a re- how much one can donate and under what circumstances. To the point that I wonder those youngsters, the children born of this process may end up, you know, uh, marrying their own siblings. This is one of those risks that one should highlight. Of course, as this technology evolves, there will be more challenges that I will touch on in this lecture, ladies and gentlemen. Many of you may wonder why this legal regulation is important and ethical considerations. The challenge is that in reality, technologies like this evolve at a faster rate to the point that legal regulation is slow to catch up. And sometimes what is considered ethical, you know, today may be unethical tomorrow when people get to know about this. Take the first case or one of the first cases of artificial insemination which happened in the U.S. in the 1800s. The circumstances under which this happened is just incredible. What happened is there was this elderly gentleman who was married to a young wife, and the challenges they couldn't conceive. And they went to see the doctor. The first thing that one does is to go and see the doctor. And the doctor realized that the challenge might be with this elderly gentleman because of his low sperm count. And this professor had four students, the doctor. And he chose one of the four male students that he considered to be the most handsome and got his semen to impregnate this lady. This lady probably didn't even know what was happening. And a healthy child was born. Of course, all the four students were made to sign a document that they will not disclose what happened. Of course, then very little was known about this. Is it ethical? Definitely it's unethical because you need consent. You need to understand what is being done and so on. As long as the doctors, the scientists push the boundaries of science, if our legislature doesn't catch up because maybe those that are supposed to enact these laws do not know where things stand, then we're going to have problems. And those, you know, who are at the forefront of science are going to do as they like to experiment and we can't have that as a, as a society and for a variety of reasons many I'll touch on so ladies and gentlemen in 1931 it's not so long ago dystopian novelist Aldous Huxley wrote, wrote a brave new world the futuristic novel ladies and gentlemen opens in the fictional world a world where citizens are artificially engineered through man-made wombs and class divisions are based on intelligence and labor is quintessential industrial age. A far-fetched notion in 1931, in artificial intelligence, AI, have made artificially engineered humans a distinct possibility in the field of reproductive technologies. These technologies include cultures that infertility is, is such a, a challenging thing, is such a stressful thing, person that cannot conceive. Ladies and gentlemen, the global assisted reproductive technology market size was valued in 2021 at $28.2 billion. 28.
in 2021 at 28.2 billion dollars the company will expand its operations in Ghana by providing quality lights. Four dollars by 2030. This is according to available research, ladies and gentlemen. In the African context, that has to be addressed. The continent, and now this is the African continent, has a higher prevalence of STIs, you know, sexually transmitted diseases and postpartum and post-abortion infections which contribute to both the male and female infertility that lead to later on people requiring these technologies or to use this technology at the core ladies and gentlemen infertility in my humble opinion is a human right issue that demands attention work that i mentioned earlier emerged as a as a glance into the future but need it be quite as terrifying as the book suggests. The world reality, in my humble opinion, is a human right issue that demands attention. Work that I mentioned earlier emerged as a, as a glance into the future, but need it be quite as terrifying as the book suggests. The world state in Huxley's novel was arguably devoid of a suitable ethical or legal framework. In the 21st century, ladies and gentlemen, what are the ethical, suitable ethical or legal framework? In the 21st century, ladies and gentlemen, what are the ethical PRC in increasing the tariffs this time? Brave new world. We must do so with the framework in place. We find ourselves in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution defined by great disruption to technology and human dignity. UNESCO referred to it as a global normative bedrock allowing to build strong respect for the rule of law in the digital world. This could be considered as soft law, which is not legally binding, but emphasizes a set of values. However, ladies and gentlemen, it does serve as a guideline for a legal framework to be established. There are also key concerns in our own context. Infertility in Africa is impacted by epidemiological barriers as there is a lack of data informing the burden of infertility. The need for reproductive technologies and even access. Moreover, invented in conversations around access both from a geographical standpoint and a financial perspective. Those that have gone through these processes will tell you these are extremely expensive. This is not something that, you know, one initial perspective. Those that have gone through these processes will tell you these are extremely expensive. This is not something that, you know, one track. Mm. And perhaps PRC is also uh, possible. There are also challenges in the cultural, religious, and societal perception of both infertility and its treatment which are pervasive in many parts of Africa. And it's not largely and societal perception of both infertility and its treatment, which are pervasive in many parts of Africa. And it's not largely because of the impact of limited knowledge of the public. That's why it's important for us to talk about this. It's because of the limited knowledge, you know, by the patients and even healthcare providers in some cases. Now, I was speaking about this topic to someone I know very well, 
um, who went through the process. She and her husband went through the process and they were blessed with twins. Normally when people go through this process, a number of eggs are fertilized and stored just in case. And as soon as they have children, many forget about those fertilized with their lives, which raises questions later on. Should people divorce? What are they going to do with those eggs or those fertilized embryos? In situations where people come from, you know, the couple comes from different jurisdictions, there are arguments about, is this property? Can the other party take this with to another jurisdiction and so on? These are topics and issues that will need to be resolved and people to understand and deal with, you know, in an organized manner. Of course, the issues that I've raised, you know, in terms of lack of knowledge are coupled with restrictive, restrictive health policies which have to be challenged. Just this week, um, a case from the Constitutional Court of the Republic of South Africa was, you know, uh, handed out and was covered in the media. I read about this yesterday where a couple that is in a lesbian relationship, same-sex couple, um, they went through this process and they were blessed with the child. They challenged, challenged the South African Children's Act because the rights provided in the Children's Act do not acknowledge both, uh, you know, the couple in this relationship as parents. And the Constitutional Court struck down that section that it must be amended to provide rights as a couple, not to one person in this relationship. I'm not saying it should be done this way of motherhood, which is changing. The concept of fatherhood or fatherlessness because a person can make a conscious decision and doesn't need a father in their lives and so on and these are the issues that we'll need to deal with as I said earlier unfortunately our laws tend to be reactive than proactive ladies and gentlemen in order to make the argument to establish these frameworks I will refer to three specific examples namely artificial wombs which is something that will be a reality already it's available there although its use is still restricted gene editing and embryo donation or adoption now artificial wombs ladies and gentlemen are devices that can grow a fetus outside the body of an organism to term it can be done where a prospective parent can dial in and sing for the child growing up in an artificial womb. It's reality. It can be done, although it's limited. And we need to talk about this and prepare for this. This technology, ladies and gentlemen, is currently focused on transferring an organism from a subject into an artificial womb. Realistically, growing an organism completely in an artificial womb will not likely to be a reality for some time, but it's coming and it will happen, ladies and gentlemen. The World Health Organization reports that around 300,000 deaths happen due to pregnancy complications. And those who advocate for these artificial wombs, they say this will save lives. Additionally, premature neonates born earlier than 22 weeks have no hope of survival. So this technology certainly represents an exciting new frontier for pregnancy and for those seeking alternative routes to conception. Ectogenesis, the process of growing a fetus out apologies, provides solutions for redefined family units and could save the lives of premature babies. Those who advocate for this argue. 
uh, raise this type of arguments. There are certainly arguments, ladies and gentlemen, to be made for the process. And as many in the field will tell you, this will likely be as common as donors and surrogacy are today in the coming years. However, if... Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. This is to be an enduring reality. We must ask the difficult legal and ethical questions and perhaps begin to consider our responses now, ladies and gentlemen. There are sense, normal, normal science and justice. From a legal standpoint, currently there are limited ethical conditions and human embryos can only be grown for 14 days, ladies and gentlemen. The 14th day is the point at which a spherical embryo starts to form a body and when cells begin taking on characteristics. With more research and acceptance of this process, how will the law adapt? I'm looking at you, Dean. How will the law adapt? Are we ready to really talk to our legislators to get ready for dealing with this? Firstly, pregnancy laws will need to be reformed, ladies and gentlemen. We also have to consider how we approach abortions, for instance. Could this technology be used to um, amend abortion laws, I ask? Additionally, 